Welcome to DexGuru Talk Show. DexGuru is your DeFi trading terminal, charting on-chain analytics, trading the most effective order routing with ZeroX API. At DexGuru Talk Show, we talk about people and projects in DeFi and crypto. My name is Roman, and I am the host. We are conducting a series of interviews with people who build the future of decentralized finance. We are all human beings, or at least we like to think so. We believe that people follow people when they make trading and investing decisions. Therefore, we focus on the person, not current news. True, whenever news about market dips or hacks becomes obsolete in a week. And today we want to focus on our incredible guest, Nodor Jinasha, co-founder of Defrag.fi, Zapper.fi, and Defi Tutorials. Without further ado, let's begin. To start it off, uh, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and give a bit of background about yourself. Hey, yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Nodar. Uh, like I said, I'm a co-founder of uh, Zapper and Defrag, currently advisor at Zapper and uh, full-time at Defrag. I'm also working on this thing called DeFi Tutorials, and that's actually how I got started in the space originally. I just started making tutorials for people to learn more about DeFi and to actually like learn more myself through that. And... Uh, just getting feedback from people, I uh, created this thing called uh, a Zap, a Zaps. So uh, we just participated in the Kyber's virtual hackathon, ended up winning it, and ended up essentially uh, pushing forth and uh, eventually merging with DeFi Snap and creating Zapper. Well, awesome. Uh, but uh, what initially got you into DeFi? Yeah, good question. So... Uh, Initially, like I found out about Ethereum in general just through a random mining tutorial I saw online, I think posted by Vice. And that got me really intrigued because I myself have a, an accounting background. So to me, the whole uh, consensus mechanism proof of work was kind of like the next step to the double entry accounting system that we've been using since like the 15th century, right? And that, that hasn't changed. So immediately I kind of jumped into the space. I started mining uh, at first, kind of learned how, to, how everything works from the ground up. And from there, really, uh, you know, I, I kind of immersed myself into learning as much as possible because I myself don't have a coding background or something. I'm, like I said, I come from an accounting background. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of kept uh, finding out more and more about the space and eventually uh, saw this new thing come about called DeFi. And uh, like I said, decided to start, like I wanted to build something. I just didn't know what. So I just started making DeFi tutorials because even my own like best friends didn't kind of weren't using DeFi when I clearly saw that it was like the next step for finance in general. So I kind of like figured what people want to see are these uh, live walkthroughs, kind of like... Uh, doing a test drive in DeFi without putting in your money first, seeing someone else do it. So I started making these live walkthrough tutorials of actually using with my own money, these new DeFi protocols that started launching, you know, everything from Compound to Uniswap and others. Uh, essentially, as they were launching, I was doing a, a new tutorial on them. And the, through that, I saw that people weren't just using one protocol, but they were like essentially hopping between two, three, sometimes more. And eventually I saw like, of course, there's going to be a, a bunch of DeFi protocols in the future as time goes on. And so, you know, hopping between multiple kind of doing multiple transactions to, to get to one point from point A to point B, people were wasting a lot of time waiting for one transaction to finish in order to initiate the next one. So this is where I kind of, you know, thought about making a zap. I was uh, a very avid user of uh, this tool in the Web2 world called Zapier, which basically combines your actions in the Web2 world. So immediately, kind of like, even with the name, you know, it was called DeFi Zap, kind of spun that really like overnight uh, in order to make a submission for the hackathon. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like how, how I got started, like really... But if anything, if anyone's kind of getting started, what I would recommend first is learning as much as possible, immersing yourself into the field, using these protocols yourself and seeing where you kind of fit in, where uh, people are missing or kind of experiencing a pain point. Everything is open, right? Like you could watch all the transactions for yourself. And what I was doing at first is actually 
going through like everyone's wallet that they were using as apps originally and seeing what else they do right within the ecosystem and see how we can make their lives better with zaps oh yeah please uh, explain us like we are five uh what is a zap essentially yeah for, for sure for sure so um for example giving you like clear example if you want to become a liquidity provider in uniswap right and uh, you have eth starting out and say it's a pool that's uh, eth and die pool on uniswap v2 and in order to for you to become a liquidity provider in that pool you need to first uh, split up your eth uh, half into dai and then essentially provide both dai and you the uh, the pool so to do this uh, you need to do three transactions so first you need to convert eth into dai then you need to approve dai for the uniswap pool and then finally you need to actually deposit eth to the uniswap pool so what a zap does is it combines all those three transactions into one So essentially, you just go one off, and in one transaction, in the background, the Zap will execute a trade, converting half of your ETH into Dai, and then putting the proceeds into the pool. So that happens again in one transaction instead of three, and that's like kind of our really uh, the simplest Zap and the uh, simplest kind of case scenario. Uh, that's actually like these uh, liquidity provisioning Zaps were. Something that made us popular, I guess you would say, at first, because uh, a lot of people didn't even know about liquidity provisioning, even though they were using Uniswap on a regular basis. So uh, kind of moved the needle for liquidity provisioning in the space with Zaps. It became a really convenient uh, way to provide liquidity and uh, even uh, kind of became as a verb, right? You zap into this pool, you zap out of that pool. So the convenience of it is that it combines those steps those transactions internally for, so for you to do it in one go oh that makes sense oh they make perfect sense uh, so talking about convenience uh, you just uh, simplified the uh, user experience for for early defy users uh, can you tell us about some of the zaps that you like the most or the most uh, excited to come out with Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, one of the apps, I'm it's pretty excited, especially like early on, and we actually had to put it put it on pause later on. Is uh, like it's called a, le- a leverage liquidity provisioning. So it's like a leverage LPing. So what it does, it, in addition to uh, getting you into a pool, it also automatically like, uh, purchases a leverage a leverage position on your uh, on your asset of your choosing. So typically, what happens when you go into a Uniswap V2 pool? Like I said before, you need to convert half of your holdings into, like, if you're going into EDI pool, you have, and you need to convert into DAI. But what that would mean is it starts going up in value, right? Like, you would essentially, when you take out the liquidity, you would take out a little bit less ETH and more DAI. So as a liquidity provider, you have this thing called impermanent loss risk, where unless you're taking out when the proportion of ETH and DAI are exactly the same, same place where you, when you deposit it, you're going to get different proportions depending on which way the price swings. So what, what people essentially, especially early on when ETH was like trading in hundreds of dollars, a lot of people expected ETH to go up. So what a lot of people didn't want to lose is this exposure to the upside. So what we did was created this leveraged liquidity provisioning pool, uh, ZAP, which essentially puts a, th- a third of your uh, deposit into a 2x uh, leverage position on ETH. So uh, you would say you're starting with three ETH as an example, as a deposit. One of that ETH is going to go into a 2x leverage, uh, leverage position, which means you have exposure to two ETH. And then the two ETH that's left over from the, for the deposit, one of them is only getting converted into the uh, asset required for the pool. Meanwhile, you, you still keep that one ETH as the other part of the deposit into the pool. So essentially, at the end of the day, you have exposure to three ETH still, uh, even being the liquidity provider in the Uniswap pool. And it's a way to eliminate impairment loss on the way up, but you double it on the way down. So it's actually this Zap who got attention from uh, Hayden from Uniswap. He actually invited us into his office to talk more a little bit more about like our plans with Zaps and stuff, because yeah, like it kind of combining positions with liquidity provisioning uh, created these new kind of uh, 
essentially positions where you can hedge the impairment loss on the way, uh, like I said, on the way up, but it doubles on the way down. So you saw an opportunity and uh, chase it. Uh, yeah, like I said, the mo- the main kind of like point is like watching what people are doing, what the pain points are, and really having having your ear to the ground uh, in terms of seeing where you can help out, what people are doing, constantly being involved. That's the main thing. So it's uh, thanks for openness of uh, DeFi because in some sense, TradeFi, traditional finance is a black box. Most yep. of the time you don't know what's under the hood. Uh, so I have a question. What if you are not tech savvy and uh, you know cannot read and understand smart contracts? You're basically dependent on others, uh, other people's expertise. Is it possible to become less dependent uh, without learning the code? Without learning the code? I mean, like the way I'll tell you, I was, like I said before, I also kind of came into the space with like absolutely no coding experience or so I wasn't like coding up smart contracts. So what I did was reach out for help on uh, literally on Discord for within the Kyber's virtual hackathon Discord. And I got a response like within minutes uh, and we ended up working together, building the initial Zap smart contracts. But uh, yeah, like. Essentially, if, if you don't know how to code yourself and you uh, essentially are not planning to learn, I would definitely suggest uh, kind of teaming up with someone. If you're building some something, definitely like looking into the upcoming hackathons to see, you know, like literally reaching out for help is our community is very open and someone is always interested to help out. Um, if you're just looking to kind of, uh, I guess, uh, just double check for yourself for your own investments, You know, I would still maybe find a person that you can re- tap into within the space uh, or like use existing resources and essentially try to at least uh, find out about the known vulnerabilities so you can check for them yourself uh, because there's like plenty of tutorials around that too. DeFi is collaborative. Uh, but uh, TradeFi, traditional finals are very competitive. Uh, why is that in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, the, when we were building out, especially like two years ago, the the industry was so kind of like, it was so early on, it, it wouldn't make sense to kind of compete because we were all building out, focusing on each kind of different components that together make DeFi the great ecosystem that it is today. And it's, you know, on its way to becoming even better with time. But essentially, yeah, like what I've noticed right away is that people are willing to collaborate and partner up, uh, work on synergies where they can kind of complement each other's uh, missing parts. So the way like most of the products are built, like like Zabs, they tap into existing kind of solutions in order to combine those actions into one Zap. So if it wasn't for, you know, Uniswap and Compound and others, Zabs wouldn't exist. So, you know, in a way, When people are building out products, they're always reaching out and seeing how they can kind of fit into the existing ecosystem and where they can provide additional value by focusing in on this one specific kind of niche, a service or product that they're going to provide to the end users, which together with other you know services and products makes the whole DeFi ecosystem better overall. So I think that's like the big, the biggest difference. Like you said, like in traditional finance, everything is black box. Everyone from day one is essentially forced to compete against each other. Even when they partner up, uh, if one of kind of like the partnership firms get gets big enough, they might kind of take the other one out of business because they're always saying, "Why are we? Why are we? Why don't we just cut these guys off?" Essentially, and uh, eventually kind of go for creating a monopoly on the services that we're providing. So. Uh, that's like the the main difference I would say between the two kind of uh, worlds. It looks like a good point to to make a transition to DeFi. What yeah, and your... a lot of people are right. <laughs> uh, sorry to interrupt you. What was your aha moment transition uh, from accounting to DeFi? What was the point of no return? I mean, yeah, like, to be honest, like I said, like, since kind of discovering Ethereum and mining, like, I've that was kind of, that was my point of no, re- no return right away. I kind of knew I was, wanted to do something within this space. I just kind of spent more than a year, like, learning everything and soaking everything in. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like, for DeFi itself, uh, when I kind of saw the way, 
like I, like I was familiar with Maker System and Dai, like ever since it started, but I've never actually like got to use it and really see how it works. But I guess like yeah, taking out a loan on Maker like the very first time and like drawing die and just doing everything and without having to wait for a counterparty to do that. That was just definitely like a a big moment in in DeFi where I realized the lots of things could be combined. You know, everything is open and you just got kind of, it's like an open field that you tap into. So that was pretty incredible. And uh, what was the file like uh, this couple of years ago when you started your tutorials and uh, your first app compared to now? What uh, change in sentiment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, in sentiment, first of all, like I said, some, some, even some of my best friends who have always been like seeing how the interest rates are way higher in DeFi, they've been reluctant to try out these new DeFi protocols because, you know, like in general, liquidity was very low. Like I remember when we were like really happy when we reached our first like million through zaps then it was like 10 million through zaps and now every day we're doing you know we had a day where we did 200 million through zaps in one day alone uh, whereas before it, would, it took us i believe like two months to get to 10 million two or three months so the volume like drastically of course and uh you know the influx of new fresh people that are coming into DeFi without kind of any prior backgrounds, uh, like seeing them, uh, you know, find a great use case within Zaps because they kind of cut off this learning curve people usually experience. So yeah, like uh, definitely the volume and a lot of other instructional pieces that have gotten built over time. Like when we were starting out, it was just a few protocols you could literally follow each launch uh, like yourself now you know, every day there's new things launching and you have to have a, a full team just to follow up kind of like and stay on top of all the new things launching so uh, yeah definitely an incredible shift like I said a, a lot of people are shifting from traditional finance into DeFi and bringing a lot of their expertise combining it with existing kind of solidity developers who know already kind of DeFi in and out and creating these new unique use cases, new financial instruments, and uh, essentially democratizing access to finance in general. So that's uh, that's a really good shift that we've seen. And it came, like to be honest, like really fast. I did not expect it this fast, as fast as it did. So, yeah. I believe nobody expected. <laughs> uh, but you were really early. Or is it better to say you're right on time? Timing is uh, kind of vital for, for startups, uh, no matter is it DeFi or, or not. Uh, and it sounds like for you, uh, it was very right at the moment. After DeFi boom, there was uh, NFT adoption in 2021. And uh, what it meant for you guys and what have you been up to during it? Yeah, so I myself have been like, yeah, like building Zapper. I've been crazy, I guess, DeFi, Ethereum maximalism for quite a while. And up until like literally just probably like six months ago, I started minting a bunch of NFTs, right? Like uh, obviously I was familiar with NFTs before, but it uh, wasn't up until, like I said, like about six months ago, I really started getting into them, minting a lot. And uh, immediately the kind of the problem that I saw, uh, which I wanted to experience myself too, is kind of what, what we did with uh, Ethereum by collateralizing in a maker and kind of never selling e- drawing out die to just pay for your day-to-day expenses is exactly the same thing that people want to do with NFTs right now. So especially like the really good uh, projects uh, that people are willing to hold either as our collateral or future games that are being built. Like nobody wants to kind of lose that exposure. Uh, so what a lot of people are looking to do is uh, essentially draw, draw out a loan against their NFTs without selling them. So I've looked around like existing solutions are mostly peer-to-peer. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, what made DeFi explode is more of a peer-to-pool model, which is very scalable. So in a way, you want to get instant kind of loan on the NFTs that you have without having to wait for a counterparty to accept your offer. So uh, what I started thinking about is creating a a platform where you could do that automatically. uh, So you get to collateralize your NFT, deposit your NFT, and get an instant loan without having to wait for anything else. So the way we do that is 
uh, with each uh, NFT, uh, like loan that you take, we're automatically buying a put option that you're required to purchase as insurance for the floor price NFT. So in case of a liquidation, like the biggest problem with NFTs is the system needs to guarantee liquidity to essentially liquidate your NFT and pay back the loan that you borrowed. And that amount always to be higher than the amount that you borrowed. And with NFT floor prices really kind of fluctuating and being very, like much more volatile than uh, like traditional spot prices with ETH, uh, it's problematic to create these automatic. So the way we did that is by tying in this financial instrument called a put option. So a put option, if you're familiar with options, is essentially a right for you to buy something, uh, but before like a set expiration. Uh, so, um, essentially, when you're taking out a loan against your NFT, we have this pool, this underwriting pool, which essentially underwrites the put options that you're buying for your NFT. So, like I said, it acts as insurance in case the floor prices of that NFT collapse. The system is, at the very least, guaranteed to get liquidity based on the strike price from the put option. That you've purchased, uh, and yeah, that put that strike price is, uh, of course, always guaranteeing the payback of the loan that you take take down. And uh, yeah, right now we're actually raising the liquidity for this initial underwriting pool, right, of underwriters through the sale of metamaticians. So uh, yeah, like each metamatician will give you a right uh, to accrue premium fees that the system is selling from the uh, put options uh, from borrowers. And equally split between all the metamatician holders. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of like in, in general how the system works. And but once we raise the initial liquidity, you know, we're going to launch the phase one of the lending protocol for NFTs. And uh, yeah, like tying everything together, um, like especially people that really need uh, liquidity, not just for like their daily expenses, but these. NFT DAO projects that are kind of stuck with a bunch of NFTs of their own in their DAO, but they need the exp- to pay for day-to-day expenses to kind of move the project forward. So they definitely need the liquidity and feel like they would find great use in a system like this. Yeah. So you tell us about Defrag.fi, uh, your most recent project. Oh, yes, I, I probably should have mentioned that. As the previous time, you saw opportunity and uh, realized it, uh, and it uh, it's about leveraging uh, Web3 and uh, NFT. How big is your team at the moment? Yeah, it's uh, four of us at the moment. Uh, I'm actually getting two of my really good friends from the traditional finance involved, Igor and Alex. Alex is a lead, was a lead engineer at Betterment. And he just quit his uh, full-time job there to join Defrag. And Igor is uh, wealth, uh, strategic wealth management, uh, works at a strategic wealth management firm, sorry. And uh, he also quit his traditional finance job to join Defrag now full-time. And the fourth person is my, my brother, who is in charge of the community. And he's been also involved in DeFi from early on with me and sort of I've been guiding him through you know, the useful resources and really, you know, his expertise in, is in research and building community. And uh, yeah, so it's four of us right now, full time. And um, we're looking for more people to join us, though, uh, actively right now, as, as we started this uh, sale of the metamaticians for the initial underwriting pool. So we're currently building out the lending protocol itself. We are looking to get that out as soon as possible to, to start playing around with. So it's basically kind of family business now. <laughs> you, 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 could, you could almost say that. Uh, as a head of community at this guru, uh, I want to explore a little bit more uh, topic of community. What do you think is uh, vital for community building and growth? Yeah, vital, like, uh, like really like, like just building the community through Zapper, right? Like what mattered the most is just kind of there every day, uh, there for your users. And like people were like shocked how I was answering, responding on Discord throughout like all hours of the day. Like it doesn't matter if it was 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 6 p.m. Uh, we were kind of like always there for, for the users and uh, always involved, like I said before, always having an ear to the ground, seeing what people are doing, seeing the pain points that they're experiencing and 
kind of constantly like you know like my favorite quote of all time is like the big don't eat the small the fast eat the slow so the number one most important thing in our industry is being fast and being flexible and having ability to pivot because you know some of the projects start out this kind of like really crazy kind of idea and like it's going to take years to build but at the end of the day things change right now on a weekly basis so you you have to be fast you have to be flexible you have to be listening to the end users at all times so like you know building up that discord relationship one-on-one with your end users i think the most important thing you could do with your community so uh, yeah it really builds some uh, personal relationships there especially as they see kind of uh, project uh, founders involved on this on this level right that they're not just kind of making plans in their office and then spending uh, half a year to build something you know they're they're there every day they're listening and uh, they're making changes as they go like uh, being flexible is very important at this uh, incredibly fast pace uh, it is kind of challenging to be a company that's on the cutting edge of, of the field how do you find people yeah, the be- fr- framework or something. Yeah, the best way to find people. I mean, you know, first of all, like the best time to, to find people was during like the bear market because you actually saw who was in the space for for DeFi, not for making money, right? So right now, you definitely have to do a lot more curation than say two years ago, right? Uh, but I think the best uh, the, the best developers, the best uh, people to help you find on hackathons, hands down, like. Uh, there's plenty of virtual hackathons going on right now, or at least within the Ethereum ecosystem, and I'm sure others as well. Uh, and like I said before, the community is so open and so helpful. Like I remember for East Denver, uh, back, back like a year and a half ago, I didn't even kind of really were short on cash. And someone from the community bought me a plane ticket to come to East Denver. Right? So like the community is incredible in our, in our ecosystem. And you just have to reach out for help. And the number one place to do that is definitely like hackathons. Each hackathon will have its own Discord channel. They're going to have a specific uh, channel within there uh, that's labeled probably something like looking for help or, or uh, looking for a team. So definitely like that would be like one place. Uh, you will get actual people who are like doing work every day and uh, you, their resume would be what they've deployed on Ethereum, right? Like you kind of like see, like your resume is your wallet, essentially. So yeah, that would be the number one space place. So I have a next question. Uh, what if uh, you're in some far, far away country and uh, you cannot uh, attend hackathon or some other live events? Uh, no, yeah, some, like I said, some advice for it. Yeah, like I said, there's there's actually more virtual hackathons right now than in-person hackathons, especially with the recent, again, outbreak of COVID, the new variant. Like most of these are now virtual, so you, the, it doesn't matter where you like. I for the for the hackathon where you won with Zaps, that was a virtual thing even back before COVID, right? So right now there's way more virtual hackathons, so you shouldn't have any issue finding a virtual hackathon uh, for your interest. So you are a living example that uh, you don't need uh, the chemistry of live events. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, like we met DeFi Snap, and when we were working on Zaps, I haven't met my co-founders in person up until like almost a year after we merged, or like six months after we merged. So like, yeah, everything was online, even though I live in New York City, Brooklyn. Like even before COVID, I was kind of always working from home and probably like working from home uh, six years now or something so yeah like definitely like you could do everything online sounds promising yeah hmm. uh can you please elaborate more about your business model uh you just explained to us uh, how we as users can make money and uh, how you as business make them so yeah with defrag number one most thing to note is that we're not setting it up as some kind of a business. We're actually doing a uh, DAO structure from day one. So essentially, the way the protocol is governed is through votes on chain. And, you know, people submit proposals and vote and everything gets decided 
by the community uh, by the community of holders of metamaticians. And essentially, you can think of it as all the people that are minting metamaticians now for Defrag. They're the ones that can be voting in which project, which NFT project will use initially as collateral within the lending protocol. Right. So, yeah, everything is uh, being worked on in the Defrag and. We're really looking forward to getting the community involved as uh, we saw like open models being a lot more scalable and powerful. Yeah. Uh, in this case, uh, I think the interesting question, uh, if you form a DAO, uh, who are your competitors? Yeah, well, like I said, there's, there's a few projects right now tackling this issue. Uh, projects like Pawn.fi, um, and a few others I'm forgetting. And essentially, like I said before, uh, they're focusing in on peer-to-peer models where when you come in with your NFT, you're essentially uh, making an offer of how, how much you want to borrow and what percentage rate. And other people, lenders, will have to accept your offer and essentially give you the money. So you're, you're getting matched one-on-one with a loan, right? With the borrower and lenders matched one-on-one. Whereas, you know, with us, you're essentially getting matched with a pool and the pool is the one issuing your loan, right? And this underwriting pool is automatically issuing put options to guarantee your loans. And you could tap into that pool um, essentially when you, in the beginning, we're going to be valuing NFT project that you'll deposit based on the average NFT floor price, right? Because all the NFT prices are obviously different, but in the beginning, we'll just use the average, right? The average floor price. And that would be kind of like your limit of uh, how much you can borrow against it as a value. And uh, yeah, like that, that would be kind of like the main difference is peer to peer, peer to pool. Uh, but like I said before, uh, we're all trying to tackle, you know, specific use cases. So like for one person, peer to peer works, for another person, a peer to pool works. So we're kind of like the, the market is wide enough for us to tackle these. Uh, this issue in our own different unique and uh, we're looking to partner for example for a project that does fractionalization of nfts so in the case the liquidation does happen and the underwriting pool ends up purchasing the nft from the borrower through the put option exercise then what we'll do is essentially fractionalize the nft and split it equally between all the underwriters right it's because you're as an underwriter like there's going to be one NFT and a bunch of underwriters. We need to figure out a way to split that. The way we could do that is by partnering with one of the fractionalization projects that, that help people fractionalize their NFTs and essentially sell, sell off a piece of that NFT instead of selling the whole. Of course, there come some uh, kind of caveats with that because as soon as you fractionalize your NFT, you essentially most likely never get back that same NFT uh, as a whole again. But like I said, this is in the worst case scenario when people liquidate it and it needs to be split uh, proportionally. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a brilliant way to deal with risk. And uh, who are the target market for your product? Right. Well, there's going to be kind of two main users in the beginning. Like I said, these underwriters who are providing ETH who are essentially willing to buy the NFT project that they're underwriting for a lower price in case liquidations do happen. But if that never happens, they're accruing more ETH through premium fees that the borrowers are paying for loans, right? So essentially, one side are the, the lenders who are providing this ETH, right, willing to become underwriters for a specific NFT projects that they choose. And the other side are the borrowers right, who are depositing their NFTs. So we'll, in the beginning, focus on one specific NFT project, whether it will be NFT collectible or collectible, something like a CryptoPunk or Bored Ape, or something that's more of a play-to-earn NFT, uh, something like, you know, from Axie. We'll see what the community of underwriters decides. And once we do that, we'll essentially focus in on that specific NFT project market, right? So like all the people who are holding that specific NFT will invite them in uh, in order to provide them with additional liquidity through loans. So all those people who are willing to kind of collateralize that NFT project will, that will first vote in, we will uh, kind of tackle tackle those people and focus in on those. And eventually you can think of it as like, is going to be uh, each under each NFT project will have its own unique underwriting pool, right? With its own unique pricing mechanism for the put options, 
And eventually we'll build out these categories of general kind of like projects that have, you know, in general, the same mechanisms, they can fall into the same category and use the same blueprint that we've developed for the pricing of the put options to kind of immediately launch this uh, lending uh, pool for their pro- NFT project. So, yeah, we're going to start out small. Uh, first, the uh, the amount that people to borrow will also be limited by the amount that we raise through the sale of metamatician NFTs themselves right now, right? So we want to keep that limited by design to make sure everything is smoothly. And then once we, you know, make sure everything is running the way it's supposed to, we'll open up the door for additional underwriters to now come in, deposit additional ETH liquidity and allow people to borrow more. Kind of, uh, again, taking it step by step, um, making sure uh, everything is running properly. And again, keeping the ear to the ground, making sure the users are getting what they want and um, tackling their pain points. Yeah. Well, uh, it seems like you have a pretty good insights uh, on the market, probably better than most uh, other competitors. Uh, but I think it's your duty to be pretty agnostic about projects, right? Uh, without naming names, uh, what do you consider promising at the moment on the like meta level? Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, kind of uh, a lot of focus recently has been, of course, on a bunch of uh, PFPs, right? Like. CryptoPunks, and like I said, Bored Apes. So more of a art and collectibles. Uh, but what we really think is, is going to happen in the future is move towards more of a play-to-earn NFTs. So we definitely believe in this mechanism and we think it's definitely going to explode in the future. So something like, you know, what Axie Infinity have proved, right? It's, but that's like the only project right now. We, we see a lot of other projects kind of building up whether it's games or other mechanisms uh, where they use their NFT to earn additional revenue by using it within the ecosystem that that project is building, right? So that would be really interesting because, you know, not only do you get get the NFT as uh, something that's just like an art collectible, but you could actually use it, right, within the ecosystem to either play a game or, you know, other things. Like in the future, I even anticipate, you know, like we'll collateralize perhaps things like real estate and you'll be able to kind of pass on the revenue, the rental revenue through NFTs the way you do with royalties now, right? So there's a lot of interesting things that NFTs in combination with DeFi are able to provide uh, in brand new ways, the same way what DeFi did to finance, right? Kind of through things like AMMs. This is what we anticipate play to earn uh, NFTs do for a lot more industries, right? Like, so it's kind of combining the infrastructure of uh, ERC-721 tokens with uh, some of the new concepts from DeFi, uh, again, to provide these new experiences for users. So that, that that's something that kind of like excites us the most, play to earn. Uh, as a player, I have, uh, you know, of skepsis about uh, play to earn concept because, uh, it kind of becomes a work and kills all the fun. Uh, wonder, what do you think about it? Maybe there's something that uh, I, I don't know about the field. Yeah, yeah, I definitely see what you're saying. But like I said, today it's games, but tomorrow it might be something uh, that's more than games. Uh, so like, yeah, like in general, I think it's definitely going to... Pr- pr- like right now, we're just seeing like really basic use cases. And a lot of it is people are essentially doing the same thing, just kind of copying over and changing just maybe one or two things around to provide the quote-unquote unique, unique experience. But we're, I think we're going to see like brand new kind of like use cases where there's going to be something entirely different. So it's not going to be just like playing a game, perhaps. Uh, there might be other kind of uh, components and variables involved. So... Yeah, I do see what you're saying, though. Eventually, if a game becomes like really popular and kind of like a money-making machine, then a lot of people treat it as work instead of, you know, fun. So, yeah, there's definitely going to be, I imagine, a good amount of that. Also, all these are emerging new games. Uh, they kind of raise regulatory questions. Uh, what's your position on the regulatory landscape today? Yeah, regulatory landscape, you know, like, uh, being in the industry for 
for for a little while. Like uh, I see some people pay, I guess, too much attention to regulations. Kind of, in, in my opinion, regulators are not really going to care about you unless you, you know, like really get into billions, right? So I wouldn't focus too much on that. Like at first, I would try to break all the barriers and focus in on providing kind of finding product market fit instead of worrying too much about like regulations. Like I've seen some people not do something because they were worried about regulation. But at the end of the day, like, you know, like, again, like nobody is going to really care about you until you reach like a really massive scale. And I'm not saying going out there, like kind of doing like kind of scammy things at all, but I'm saying something like where, you know, like, oh, like we weren't able to kind of provide this new feature because we felt like, it would might be considered a security within the state or something, right? So I wouldn't be too much concerned about that. I would just really, again, focus in on finding the product market fit. Uh, and then, you know, if if you're too worried, then like, you know, I've seen plenty of people set up within like Switzerland and other kind of like Portugal where, where re- regulatory regulations are very, very much like open for, for crypto. So if you're if you are too worried about that, or eventually when you get to scale, uh, when you need to start worrying about that, I would suggest you know just moving from the place where you're worried about those regulations, because that would be like the best way instead of kind of wasting money to try to jump hoops around regulations or something like that, or making sure everything is in check and staying there. I would just move uh, before wasting money on that. Yeah. Decentralize everything, basically. Yeah, yeah, and then like even when we're trying to like initially raise money for like Zapper and stuff, we were getting on calls and like some of the people within our space also like I'm not gonna mention them by name, but some of the really big people were also like, you know, like oh, if I were to start my project from day one, I would have never set up a company around it. I would have done DAO from day one, right? And now they were working on kind of bringing everything back, right? Kind of reversing, right? All the corporate structures they set up before to make it into a DAO. So it's really hard to do that once you don't do it from day one, right? Like uh, kind of converting. It's similar to, you know, companies that, you know, want to become remote after being, you know, having an office throughout their uh, entire existence. It's a hard conversion. So, yeah, like... uh, Definitely would consider consider that. So basically, form DAO from around the world and and keep going. Uh, I have a question uh, that appeared to me. Uh, how do you compete with DAO? I, I'll explain a bit. Uh, in traditional uh, finance, uh, with traditional companies, you have uh, like this group of people uh, competing with that group of people, and. Uh, they are not interconnected. If you work at Apple, you work at Apple and you do not work for Google. But with DAO, people can work uh, with DAO A, DAO B, DAO C. And uh, basically, uh, it's interesting how DAO can uh, compete with each other in, in, in future. What do you think about it? Right. Yeah. I don't think we're at that point at all yet. I think we're definitely at a point where there's a lot of collaboration. Like I said, like, kind of feels like early on with DeFi, the same thing. So, especially because of the fact that, you know, as a member of one DAO, you know, you're kind of open to join not just one, but multiple DAOs, right? And because of that, because of the ability for different DAOs to then kind of incentivize different players within different members within each other's ecosystems, they could really like create a powerful movement together, right? So I think there's going to be more collaboration than competition in the near future. Um, again, especially because it's so easy to for the members to get involved and to get incentivized to perform different tasks that they're focused on within different DAOs. That that to me again is is very powerful, and we've seen we haven't seen anything yet around, and that's gonna definitely be a powerful uh, movement. Awesome! I think we can uh, end up with uh, kind of like business question. And uh, as I said before, we focus on person. Everyone has not only business side, but also personal side. So I have a bunch of 
kind of personal questions for which are not interconnected but uh, fun to think about. And uh, the first is, uh, what is something you believe that uh, other people think insane? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, at first it was DeFi, but now it's definitely like NFTs, right? Especially uh, played around NFTs where around uh, mechanisms where, you know, you get to your real estate property may become an NFT one day. People definitely think that's crazy uh, because, yeah, most people think it's, you know, right-click save right now. You know, that's what NFT is. That's what most people imagine it as. So, yeah, I guess <laughs> that would be my answer to that. Yeah, it sounds a bit crazy, like uh, DeFi sounded a bit crazy a couple of years ago. Uh, what is your favorite uh, documentary or movie? Uh yeah, that's yeah, it's definitely also a hard one. Uh, I guess like there's a lot of good movies and documentaries. Uh, I guess I'll see like you know, from the most recent thing, it'll be from documentary side. Honestly, it'll be like 14 Peaks. Uh, it's a documentary about these guys, these mountaineers that like, kind of essentially this guy that climbs the highest mountains in the world, like a bunch of them within six. I think yeah, 14 of them within six months or something. And it's just like a story about like not giving up and really persevering. And yeah, it was really pretty, pretty powerful. Perseverance uh, is vital. Yeah. Building the startups. Have you seen Don't Look Up? Oh yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. It was, it was really weird, but yeah, Leo was, uh, Leo was great. As it, usual. It's kind of <laughs> documentary, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we all maintaining uh, quite a hard schedule uh, with, uh, not much of a sleeping, not much of a exercise in most of us. Uh, so it's uh, quite quite hard to to keep your physique. Uh, can you tell us more about uh, your morning rituals? What do the first 60 minutes of your day look like? <laughs> well, I guess first thing I should say, I, I don't know, a morning, well, that's a typical morning because, uh, yeah, like, again, working from home the past like, five or six years, I've just kind of, um, especially like through the DeFi summer where at one point, like you just didn't sleep for days, right? Uh, but really, like there's no morning, like kind of go to sleep and wake up whenever my body feels like it, I guess you would say. But yeah, like sometimes morning is at 6 a.m., but sometimes morning is at 2 p.m. And so like, but when I wake up, the first 60 minutes, like, yeah, besides kind of like breakfast and, uh, you know, brushing teeth, uh, I actually like to start the day off with like a game of Call of Duty. Like I'll, I'll play like a game of Warzone uh, to get my juices flowing, and uh, yeah, and then start my day off. <laughs> Just a portion of testosterone for a day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what obsessions do you explore on the evenings or weekends uh, outside of your job? Yeah, I mean it was definitely hard for me to have any of those. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, like I love to snowboard. So like anytime I kind of have time to get out, I try to hit up a mountain, uh, usually go to Vermont. It's kind of like the closest, nicest mountains we have around the uh, East coast. Yep. Awesome. Uh, what topic would you speak about if you were asked to give a TED talk on something outside of your area of expertise? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'll be giving the TED Talk uh, area that's outside of my expertise, uh, but uh, if I were to choose something, it would be something around, uh, I guess, like bringing more attention to um, um, like homeless dogs and dogs in shelters, because uh, like I care about that a lot. A lot of them uh, get uh, killed uh, because they're, they don't get adopted. Meanwhile, there's a lot of people buying dogs for money. Uh, so you could just adopt one instead of buying one. Uh, so, yeah. Do you have a dog yourself? Yeah, I have a dog and two cats. Nice. What's his name? Uh, her, her, name is, her name is Ellie. Yeah, it's a pit bull. Awesome. Uh, pit bulls get the worst love in adoptions. So, yeah, we, we adopted her. <laughs> yeah, it's like low, lowest race of adoption. Yeah, because, uh, you know, like people think they're like mean dogs, but it's like the owner's that are raising them that way, right? Because they're 
because of the way they're built. They've been to be these fighting dogs. But again, if a dog is raised not to be a breeding dog, it's not going to be aggressive. And it's just because, you know, pit bulls are just bigger built. Percentage-wise, most of them are to be fighters. And then there's the stigma against them. They think just, you know, every pit bull is just this aggressive beast. Like a lot of people in my building, uh, grandmas get so scared, but she's, she's never been anybody in her life. Yeah. So you're staying open-minded in every part of your life. <laughs> yes, you definitely say that. And uh, talking about that, uh, what is the worst advice you see uh, here being dispensed uh, in, in DeFi at the moment? The worst advice? Yeah, there's a lot uh, of, you know, uh, financial gurus uh, who show some bags or something, but uh, uh, what do you consider uh, the worst possible advice uh, at the area? Yeah, I mean, given around that, yeah, definitely see a lot of people, you know, given they see all these high APYs, the worst advice a person could give is essentially alert somebody in because of a high APY, right, which is as we all know, incredibly, like, it varies, and you have to be, like, perfect on your timing, especially when you become a a liquidity provider. So the worst advice is luring somebody in with this high APY without telling them about things like impairment loss and all the kind of, like, risks involved. This is, like, a big reason I also started out with DeFi tutorials, too, is as seen on Reddit, I remember somebody created, like, a, a DeFi coin, uh, which was completely fake coin. And they said it was like kind of following the, the total value locked in DeFi, right? So it's kind of pegged to that, which was just complete nonsense. And I've seen some people like buying, really buying into that, you know, the total value locked in DeFi go up. So that was just like so cringe and unbelievable to me. And uh, yeah, like people need, needed to know like, the differences between like, you know, total value lock and market caps and just like the basic things. So like, I really didn't like that. Yeah. Outside of that, uh, if you could have one gigantic billboard anywhere in the world with anything on, uh, what would this billboard say? Uh, I guess it would say by mathematicians. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, by, by the way, not financial uh, advice for sure. <laughs> uh, I think it's an awesome name. Who came up with it? Oh yeah, we were just kind of thinking about it because we were. I always like this kind of this. I don't know if you saw this timeline of all the famous mathematicians, and you know it goes back a few hundred years and uh, kind of gives you a little background about about each mathematician. So, yeah, it's like all this talk about meta, you know, it's kind of kind of flew off the tongue one day. It's just kind of metamaticians, right? And uh, what we're doing with defrag is kind of like defragmenting liquidity within it, right? So, it's, uh, defrag is the DAO, and metamaticians are the NFTs that kind of control the DAO. So, yeah, given the fact that it's around, uh, you know, DeFi and finance, figured that was a pretty fitting name. Cool. Uh, another uh, question not related. Uh, what advice would you give to your five, ten years youngest self? And uh, where were you at the time and what you were doing? Yeah, five, ten years uh, younger. I mean, yeah, going back some like ten years. Uh, what was I doing ten years ago? <laughs> uh, I think I was probably like uh, working at my first uh, startup. I joined the startup called Plan Guru, which was a financial budgeting and forecasting software. And like, yeah, even though I learned a lot, like I was, I remember I gave my whole self to like that startup and uh, like, uh, like uh, I guess this is the, also like the big problem of traditional corporations, right? Like the incentives weren't set up for me proper way, right? For me to kind of keep killing myself for that startup. So I just ended up, you know, leaving and, kind of starting my own startup within the accounting space. And yeah, like I, I kind of tried a lot of things and worked in a few places. And like, I've always kind of, I guess, quote unquote, never settle mentality. And it was in a, a lot of points, like very frustrating, right? Like even working within DeFi, kind of like not getting paid for the first like 
over two years or something, right? Like kind of evil. My own parents were telling me like, what the fuck are you doing with your life, right? Like, so it all kind of, it does bring you down. But like the most important thing is like, yeah, staying, you know, perseverance, like we said before, is definitely the most important. Now what I would tell myself is like, yeah, definitely like obviously don't give up and you got to keep doing what you like because it's the only way you'll kind of get through that. And there's no... There's no, there's nobody that goes, kind of walks a straight line to success, right? There's always going to be ups and downs. And when the downs are there, the only way, the only thing that literally takes you through that will be your just like passion for what you're doing. Because I remember, even though I was doing everything for free, I was like, okay, even like I realized like I might not make any money for the, for the foreseeable future, but I just kept doing it because it's something I like doing every day, right? Like, uh, like that didn't stop me. So. Yeah, like really being like, uh, and there's a lot of people that are always going to tell, you know, that you're wrong. Even I have like one of the biggest VCs in the space email back one of the tutorials I sent around Zaps saying like, like, why are you doing this? You're wasting your time. This is a two hour hackathon project. Like, you know, like if anything, that kind of actually pushed me to, to build harder. But there's always going to be people that you think are smart also, and they might be smart, but they, they kind of try to bring you down. So like, yeah, like always trying to staying above and always seeing the long-term vision. That's like what, what we gave through everything. The way you describe it, uh, wasn't it just, uh, you know, secrets of events that uh, lead you to successful yourself today? Yeah, like it was, it wasn't like a straight road. Like even like, even after winning the hackathon, the DeFi Zap, right? Like, there was a constant kind of like, I remember there was a whole like die switch. Like people didn't know what was going on. Like you had the old die, you had the new die. We kind of had to tackle that whole issue around the entire space. Then there was that, like the hack with one of our zaps that were using one of the protocols that got hacked called Fulcrum. Uh, then there was like the whole COVID thing started, right? And like nobody got an investment. Like at that time, we we're trying to raise the seed round. But it was like, it felt like right end of the world. Like ETH went below $100. Uh, people got liquidated for $0 on uh, Maker. It was just a really dark time, right? Like, and then like tables turned in the summer, right? So yeah, definitely the farthest thing from the straight road. And that's why I said, like when things actually started happening, it was like so quick compared to what we were just in just a few short months ago. It felt like, it felt unreal of how quickly things started changing. And uh, with all these uh, continual changes, uh, what have you changed your mind about the uh, last few years and why? Yeah, I mean, it would definitely be uh, NFTs, right? Like, because again, like I, I was familiar with NFTs uh, myself. I've actually minted NFTs like even before DeFi started. Like uh, uh, there's this, game called the cheese wizards where kind of everyone competed in this like battle royale style game for this big cheese quote unquote but it was like pretty big cheese it was like 800 e that the, like the final winner would get and we just kind of battled these other cheese wizards and yeah like that project ended up going nowhere but uh, yeah like i remember even though i minted like i said like early on nfts i kind of never really thought they would they would find the use case the way they did, right? Like, so I never really looked into it too deep. Um, so that was like my, I guess, yeah, definitely like my biggest, um, yeah, like thing I changed my own mind about in the last, in the last year, essentially. <laughs> and now you're bet on it with conviction. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Outside of DeFi and NFT, what do you believe is true, even though you cannot prove it? Um uh, not sure what you believe is true, but I can't prove it. Um uh, like outside of DeFi, um like in general. Yeah, like um... as you wish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh we can just skip it. It's really yeah. hard question, kinda. Uh <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it. We, we talked about first sixty minutes of the day, uh but what constitute a perfect day for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there is such a thing as a perfect day because if you have a perfect day, then you kind of 
But all the other days are worse. So, like, if anything, I would always kind of strive, like, yeah, to always improve something about my daily routine. Uh, mainly it would be something that, you know, a day where I'm, you know, hyper-focused on kind of like what I'm doing with little distractions. You know, it's so easy to get distracted in our space. There's Discord, Telegram, all these things, people always messaging you. You'll, you want to get involved into interesting things, and there's a lot of interesting things. So, you know, you kind of have this FOMO if you don't, if you don't, if you're not there all the time, kind of like engaging. Uh, but then at the same time, you want to keep focused to things pushing. You know, at the end of the day, you could focus on 10 things, but if you get a little done on those 10 things, you'd rather get just one thing done fully, right? So my perfect day would be something where I stay hyper-focused and, uh, yeah, like kind of get a full task done because it's always better than a little bit of uh, a bunch of pieces like that. <laughs> mm, I think industry is kind of based on distraction entirely. And uh, yeah. how do you deal with distractions anyway? Yeah, I mean, the are only you, way to... Are you into yeah. yoga, meditation, sounds, some you know, other practices? Yeah, I should be. Yeah, I should be. But I've never got into that. I like play basketball. used to play basketball once a week, every week. But I even stopped that. So, like, my only meditation now is, like, snowboarding. Um, but, yeah, like, distractions are, are very hard. So, the only way to deal with them is literally turning everything off. except the thing that you're focused on. Other, other than that, yeah, like, it's, yeah, it's really up to the individual, really. Okay. Uh, is there somewhere you have visited that you felt really had an impact on uh, who you are today? Event, uh, I don't know, museum, uh, anything? Uh, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, like uh, when I visited Japan, uh, that definitely had a pretty big impact in the way that like, I kind of saw the way, I don't know if you've ever been to Japan, but it's kind of like, the way people live there and the kind of the the discipline and the cleanliness of like everything I felt like I was in a movie. So like the impact that it had on me is like in general also just becoming more calm. Like everyone, like I haven't heard anybody scream the entire time I was there or like raise their voice. So just this calm attitude, no matter what happens, right? Like it's always best to keep your head straight. Um, Yeah, so, like, that would be, like, a pretty... Because we, we also stayed there. I remember my wife, we stayed there for a month. So, like, we, we kind of stayed there for a little while to really see the day-to-day -day lives. So you're not into yoga-like things, but uh, you're into Busida code. <laughs> yeah. If a crystal ball could tell you the truth about the future or anything else, what would you want to know? Uh, I'm not sure if I would want to know, know anything like that because I would defeat the whole purpose. But I don't know. Like everyone, I guess, says that. But maybe you would want to know the price of ETH in one year, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of cool edge to have. I guess. <laughs> For what in your life do you feel most great? It would definitely be my parents. Because, yeah, like I said before, you know, They had to kind of go through a lot before I, um, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't say became successful, but just kind of like stood up on my own feet and, you know, stop asking them for money, essentially, because they supported me a lot through like what I was doing and even the previous businesses that I've started. And, you know, it's been a rough road and definitely I feel most grateful for having very open-minded parents myself that, uh, yeah, haven't given me too much shit you know er earlier on and like you know like i feel like if it was anybody else like i, I would have they would have like i would have definitely not <laughs> last as long you know like and uh can you tell us about uh you know like uh, your most meaning meaningful memories uh connected uh, with your family Meaningful memories? Yeah, I guess it would be when we moved from Ukraine to uh, to uh, U.S. You know, it kind of my parents just literally uh, did it definitely for me and my brother because they saw like things in Ukraine weren't working out too well. They wanted a better future for us. And this memory of kind of arriving here in uh, in New York and 
our grandparents meeting us here because they already like lived here. And uh, yeah, just seeing my dad, uh, you know, like study to become an electrician, even though he was like over 40 or something. So like just, uh, yeah, like seeing them start from like zero, right, all over again in a place that they're not familiar with and the language they're not familiar with was pretty, uh, pretty encouraging. <laughs> yeah, not everybody can lose off. Thank you for this conversation. Uh, it was very insightful and uh, sometimes touching. Uh, do you have any ask or request for our audience? Uh, some last parting words? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would suppose some of your listeners are, if they're thinking about, like I said before, kind of starting a project or getting themselves involved, that's kind of like number one thing. A lot of people ask me is like, oh yeah, how, how can I get involved or what can I build? Like I said before, like the I would like number one thing I would recommend is you know getting yourself involved as much as possible within Discord, starting from that, and then learning and providing educational content for others as you learn and building up uh, kind of like your your own community through that, right? Because in the beginning, like nobody knew about me. You know, this is why I started like Defa tutorials, right? And it was a low hanging fruit because each tutorial that I did about each project, that project that shared me within their community, right? And nobody was doing that at that time. So like, they were happy to share, you know, someone doing uh, literally a walkthrough tutorial about their own, you know, product, right? So people are happy to share. People are happy to help you out. So like, yeah, just have to show that initial kind of uh, push from your side that you're willing to do the work and uh, get yourself involved. You know, like, like hackathons, number one place and don't be don't be scared to like ask for help that's like my number yeah definitely suggestion thank you for having me yeah this was great brilliant advice thank you thank you for attending uh honored to meet you likewise man thank you so much have a good one thanks for all our listeners we're glad to have you here and uh, that is all folks have a nice day